Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. People think that like this law only affects the OB, OBGYNs as a group and they, it disproportionately affects them and their care with their patients, but it also just trickles down into pretty much all of medicine um, in a lot of ways and how we can take care of our patients. And so, and it's been brutal also just as a woman to My name's Rachel Mahendale. I'm a neurologist that works in Texas. Having been on the forefront of this, I think really all of our lives, we've always watched women fighting for reproductive rights in the state and to experience something like this in the midst of a pandemic is especially soul-crushing and disheartening because we're already under so much duress with the pandemic. And that has especially made it more difficult for women to gain access to abortion. And now they have really no options in a state that's as big as France. Uh, my name is Tessie Mlad. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician with a special interest in obstetrics critical care. So I also deal with the complications of pregnancy that require intensive care unit management. The Texas state law, passed last May, imposes the so-called fetal heartbeat rule, adopted by half a dozen states previously, which effectively prohibits abortion after about six weeks of pregnancy before most women even know they've become pregnant. From the 1st of September, this law takes effect. It creates criminal penalties against health professionals, as well as allowing any citizen in the country completely unrelated to the case to bring an action against health professionals. My two guests are Rachel Mahendale and Tasneem Lat, two doctors in Texas. I want to emphasise that the views that my guests express on today's program are theirs and not that of their employer. There's a lot of talk of this law being in conflict with a test case ruling called Roe v Wade. So we'll start here with Tasneem explaining exactly what that means. Roe v Wade, which is the the abortion case that was before the Supreme Court in the um, early 70s. So... Uh, Jane Roe was actually an anonymous individual who um, sought an abortion in 1969 in the state of Texas. And at that time, the state of Texas actually had completely banned all abortions, even those that resulted from rape and incest, except in the event of life-threatening illness for the patient. Um, She was denied an abortion, and she went to two attorneys by the names of Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, and they ended up suing the District Attorney of Dallas Um, by the name of Henry Wade, and that was why the case is named Roe v. Wade. So the case was taken to the U.S. District Court in Texas, which struck down the law, and they called it unconstitutional. And that decision was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, which is the highest court in the United States. And there they argued that the government restriction of abortion is um, or was an invasion of an individual's constitutional right to privacy and the Texas law was actually struck down. Um, This ended up being a landmark decision in our nation's Supreme Court that the Constitution protects a woman's right to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. Um, But where it gets a little more murky is figuring out or determining when during the course of a pregnancy abortion is acceptable. 
the the court tried to balance the interests of a woman's right to privacy and the state's government's interests in protecting quote unquote prenatal life because Texas's lawyers argued that life begins at conception and the quote unquote mother's health because Texas's lawyers argued that abortion was an unsafe procedure. Um, so the Supreme Court ruled that a state couldn't really restrict abortions in the first trimester except to provide reasonable medical safeguards like abortions um, have to be provided by licensed physicians. And regarding the second trimester, they ruled that the state could enact more restrictive legislation saying that the procedure poses a higher risk to the patient's health so long as they were reasonable and narrowly tailored to protect the mother's health. Again, that being in the second trimester. But in regards to the third trimester, which is when fetuses become viable, the Supreme Court ruled that protection of prenatal life becomes more compelling and that abortion can be prohibited except in cases where the patient's life is in danger. So after the ruling in this case, a lot of states with Republican controlled states um, have to pass varying types of legislation that try to restrict abortion and make it extremely onerous to get an abortion but that could essentially, really technically speaking, be upheld if taken all the way to the Supreme Court based on previous legal precedents set by Roe v. Wade. Yeah. So since then, a dozen states have passed um, legislation attempting to restrict abortion starting at six weeks, but have always been challenged in courts and prevented from being enacted. But this newest Texas law called um, Senate Bill 8 or the Texas Heartbeat Act is much more, I think, insidious. This isn't the first time that Texas has tried to do stuff like this because, um, right? I right, right. Yeah. There was a law to make restrict where a woman could get abortion and abortion providers had to only work in ambulatory surgical centers and had to have hospital credentials, which a lot of abortion providers do not have. Um, basically, they're making the argument, again, like what Dr. Latt was saying, that um, abortion was inherently a, um, a harmful procedure and that it was too much for most abortion providers to um, undergo. Um, and basically, um, so they've been kind of trying to chip away at that. And then I think um, in 2019, the Trump administration also limited the speech of physicians um, discussing with Title X patients about how they could have contra um, contraception if they could talk about abortion or not. So this has been going on for a while. Yeah, the major difference here is um, this law allows any private citizen, meaning not only just residents of Texas, but a resident of the state of Illinois or the state of New York can sue a Texas doctor or any other individual who tries to help a woman seeking an abortion after six weeks of gestation, which is, you know, most women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. And those individuals who um, successfully sue um, any, the provider or anybody else who's trying to help um, a woman they can actually receive a $10,000 reward from the state government, which is essentially putting a bounty on the heads of like physicians and clinics who are performing abortions, as well as people who say provide a ride for a woman to an abortion clinic. Like, I don't know if you all have rideshare services in Australia, but we have companies like Uber and Lyft um, that, you know, could be providing a transportation for these women to abortion clinics. And in which case uh, somebody who's suing, um, the physician can also see the Lyft driver. Um, 
So it's even more disturbing because there are no exceptions for rape and incest. There's only uh, an exception for quote unquote endangerment to the patient's health, which can also be questionable um, because some people may feel that they have to wait for a patient to bleed out or start getting septic before you can definitively say that a pregnancy is endangering the patient's health. And I think what's really ironic about this bill is that proponents of this bill claim it's protecting women. And yet Texas has, uh, I think, double the maternal morbidity and mortality rate in the nation. But I don't I I don't see any laws attempting to fund access to better prenatal. Yeah, I think it's one of the highest. I don't think it's the highest. It's one of the highest in the nation, if I'm not mistaken. It's extraordinary, the the reach of this law. And we'll come to any possible challenges to that in a moment. But what I wanted to talk about was that women of colour, poor women, migrants, even trans men, I think, these people are disproportionately impacted by the changes. Can you explain how, if the law is so broad and and impacts all women, how is it that um, minority women are, are more impacted by it? I think part of this goes to kind of what, what we were talking about earlier, specifically uh, when I was discussing um, Title Nine, Title Ten, excuse me, clinics in, te- in Texas or in the United States. So those clinics are basically clinics that are funded by uh, funded by federal Title Ten funds, and those clinics are like Planned Parenthood clinics, uh, not um, like uh, clinics in the state, um, and those are frequented much more. Uh, often by low-income women or women of color or migrants. And, and so basically they provide a lot of care to those women and, and essentially one, even starting with the Trump administration, their reach has already been curtailed. And I think what's going to happen is now with this law, I think migrant and Migrant women, women of color um, will have just less access to those clinics. I think they're going to start one closing down. And then two, a lot of these women don't really, I think, understand what the law means. So I actually had a long conversation um, with my close friend who's an OBGYN. And she said a lot of these women um, are in positions um, like marriages or home life positions that place them at risk for marital rape, spousal rape, incest, and or just um, don't really have access to birth control or IUDs or anything like that. And she's having she's discussed already with a lot of these women. They you know they ha- they're like 24 and they have six kids and they're like I really can't afford another baby. And she explains you know she's having already explained to people look we need to start thinking about birth control and things like that. You know even though you may want one in the future because the way this law is set up. I cannot provide you with abortion services after six weeks. And I mean, I think the more insidious thing is that for better or for worse, I think a lot of rich women in this, con- in this country or in Texas specifically, if we needed to have an abortion for whatever reason, could probably fly out of the state at any given time and do so. Um, whereas a lot of these women already a lower income and women of lower income women, women of color migrants already have poor access to a lot of these clinics because, I mean, a lot of these clinics have closed as um, Texas has eroded um, women's health access over the past few years, right? With that law I was talking about um, needing a surgical center or whatever to perform abortion. It already had started closing clinics at that time. 
And so now I think they're projecting like 85% of these clinics that provide services for people who may close. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. I'm speaking with Rachel Mahendale and Tasneem Lart, two doctors operating in the state of Texas. We're discussing the introduction of the fetal heartbeat law, effectively banning abortions and criminalising health professionals and others who help women procure them. I emphasise that the views of my guests are theirs and not that of their employers. So Texas, which represents about 10% of the US's population, is just one state that's moving in this direction. Earlier I said there's about half a dozen states that are trying to wind back abortion laws. What What are the others doing and why is it that Texas has brought this issue to the international attention? The other states that are looking to mirror this legislation are Republican controlled. Um, So there are states like South Dakota and Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, pretty large swath of this country that, you know, makes up a large geographic area, but are really not all that populous compared to a place like Texas. Um, Texas is a little different from these other states in that it's um, one of the largest states in the U.S. from both a geographical and a population standpoint. So um, it's actually as large as the country of France. It could actually stand on its own as a nation, given it's an economic powerhouse of its own. So tons of corporations have settled their headquarters in cities like Austin, Dallas, and Houston. And um, the Texas Medical Center in Houston is actually the largest um, healthcare district in the world. It's, it's a really fast growing state in terms of population and it has strong economic ties with Mexico and, and uh, other, other countries internationally. So if I, if I were to travel abroad and people were to ask me where I'm from, I could say Texas and most people would automatically know where it is. Um, Texas produces at least one presidential candidate every election cycle. So because the state is so recognizable internationally, this law has garnered a lot of attention because it's very concerning, because most industrialized nations recognize that reproductive rights are human rights. And the concern is that um, there will be about half, half of the states in, the, in, in this country will attempt to enact this type of legislation. Well, you, uh, you dovetailed into my next question perfectly uh, when you said that the other states that are trying to replicate this law are Republican states. And, and what I want to ask is, well, there's law and there's politics and this slide against democratic rights, the losing of women's rights that we have previously won. This is all consistent with a broader right-wing offensive at least that's how I'm viewing it what can you say about the social context in which these anti-abortion laws are being introduced it's so interesting that you kind of approach it like that because I I don't really think this is about um you know I think a lot of the right-wing politicians kind of couch themselves in the auspices of pro-life and they use kind of that rhetoric and they invoke Jesus and Christianity and all those things. And really what it comes down to is power, authority, and control. As you can see, you know, not just with these women, women's health issues, um, but with like the voting rights laws that have been passed in Texas and in other states, um, which kind of seek to reduce access, especially in like minority and low-income communities. So it's, it, and I think it's because a lot of these politicians, to be quite honest, are concerned 
but the demographics are changing in many of these states that they've held, you know, so held for so long. And one of the reasons they held them for so long, it was, was because, I mean, we don't have to go into this, but, you know, starting for the past 30, 40, 50 years is that there's been this idea of the Southern strategy that the uh, right wing in the U.S. has promoted. And that kind of came about after the Civil Rights Act was signed in 1965. And so it's been this slow, um, kind of appeal to the fear in a lot of, frankly, white voters in the U.S., um, an appeal to their Christianity and nationalism and this jingoistic, like, patriotism. And and it's this fear that they have that more immigrants are coming to these uh, states, that the the people that are that are migrating to these places, whether they're from the U.S., other places in the U.S. or from other countries, are liberal and um, some, you know, liberal and uh, some of them are educated. Um, Other ones are, even if they're of economics, um, you know, they use kind of ridiculous language, like talking about them, you know, reproducing. I think they're scared of them reproducing and and quote unquote, um, having, you know, new voters, essentially. And so I think that's kind of all the right, broader right wing assault. I mean, part of the I'm very, very worried about what's going on in Texas, because I think Texas is like a laboratory for like the rest of the U.S. And part of me, you know, because they, they've enacted these law, this, the abortion law, the voting right, the voting rights law. Um, I don't know if you know about this, but in Texas now you can carry a permit, uh, carry a gun out in the open without a permit. Um, all those kinds those these kinds of laws and it's extraordinarily scary. And, and with the climate that the Trump administration created right before right before he lost kind of makes me concerned, especially with the Supreme Court, that a lot of these laws may pass. I mean, part of me also thinks this is especially if you look at the way Texas has tried to vote um, in recent cycles, although we can talk, you know, that's a different subject about how gerrymandered Texas is and how it's carved up to dilute the vote of liberals and people of color. Um, But you can see when you look at, you know, electoral maps over the past 10, 20 years in Texas, it has progressively become more purple. And part of me hopes and wonders if this is kind of the last stand of a dying ideology in Texas or a weakening ideology in Texas, rather. There is a growing movement to claw back these hard-fought rights, and I guess you could say that that growing movement also includes some of the issues that you raised, basically a move, a left-wing movement in opposition to the right. Uh, what can you say about that? Well, I think there's traditional organisations like the American Civil Liberties Union, which has always you know, taken these legal battles to the Supreme Court and there's organizations like Neural Pro-Choice that are always willing to fight this in the court of law. Um, but I think that the resistance has really started to bleed into the corporate world. I think people start to expect more, um, especially with younger generations, we start to expect more from the companies that um, you know we purchase products from or we purchase services from and want more um, ethical and moral responsibility from them. So Actually, both rideshare companies, Uber and Lyft, have pledged to provide legal fees for drivers who knowingly or unknowingly transport women to abortion clinics. Um, the initial website that was used to that went into effect on September 1st to report violations of this law um, was actually set up on um, on GoDaddy. 
And GoDaddy has since shut down the reporting website saying that this is a violation of, um, you know, you still have to have consent from the people that you're reporting. You're, you still have to have some sort of consent to the invasion of their privacy. Um, so I think corporations are, you know, don't want to be a part of this um, because, you know, women make up almost half the workforce, if not more, in this country. Um, and at an individual level, I think individuals have really attempted to disrupt implementation of this law um, by flooding the reporting website with false leads and tips, um, which would make it a lot more difficult for whoever, whomever is tasked with following through on these tips and leads, um, making their job much, much more difficult. So I think from, you know, both, both a um, organized um, national uh, movement to both corporate level and then finally at an individual level, there's, there's resistance at every level. That is uh, very good to hear. And of course, we're going to keep um, our eye on the development of this issue because um, fighting against uh, the the banning effectively of abortion is critical. It's always been central to the women's movement, a movement against misogyny and sexism. Rachel and Tasneem, thank you so much for your time on the program today. I know that this interview does come at some risk to you. So I appreciate you stepping out and being willing to speak about it and just in the closing minutes of the show I wanted to ask if there was anything you wanted to add to the discussion I'll say a couple of words and then Taz do you want to take say a couple of things too so basically you know I wanted to reiterate and I think Taz will probably have her thoughts on this too is that you know I think one of the concerning things about this legislation and I think that people don't immediately recognize is that it's and I think Taz brought that up earlier is you know this this intrusion on the physician patient relationship, because I think people like both of both of us went into medicine because we actually really wanted to help people. And even though both neither one of us are OBGYNs, we often more often than people realize, you know, sometimes have tough conversations about um, pregnancy. Oh, and, you know, this may come up. I, I wonder if this has a, will have a trickle down effect with different legislation in the future with end of life discussions and those kinds of things. And both of us have had to deal with, you know, pregnant patients um, who have, who have devastating either neurologic or, um, or systemic conditions. And it's frightening. I, I can say for myself, it's frightening to me to realize that basically in the act of doing my job and doing something that I'm very passionate about and, and doing something that I think is in the best interest of a patient, um, I could, I could get sued. I could lose, you know, my livelihood. I could lose access to all these patients, you know, um, and act. And it's, it's just, I, I can't, I wish I could be more eloquent. It's just a kind of a scary time. I think both to be a patient and I quite frankly, a doctor in Texas. I think I would agree with Rachel. I, um, I'm, as, as I've already said, I'm trained in pulmonary care as well. And so I, te I teach, uh, you know, I take care of patients who have conditions like pulmonary hypertension, which historically, you know, the, the rate of mortality for patients who get pregnant and have pulmonary hypertension, the mortality rate is upwards of 50%. And so when I went through fellowship and in all the textbooks I have ever read and on my medical boards, when I sat for it, it was, you know, you're asked if a patient who comes with pulmonary hypertension gets pregnant, what is the first thing that you advise them? And that is to terminate the pregnancy because it comes at a great cost to them. I, I agree with Rachel. 
I think that this is a very frightening time for uh, patients, mostly because of uh, a lack of, you know, access to the care they need. Abortion is a medical procedure like any other procedure, uh, but far less invasive and dangerous than, say, something like an appendectomy. Um, this law is cruel and unusual. Uh, there are many reasons a woman might seek an abortion, um, rape, incest, enduring an abusive relationship, um, previous health conditions that may not tolerate pregnancy. And um, from a physician standpoint, I, I find it uh, concerning because this law is very intrusive in the patient-physician relationship. I mean, can you imagine a private citizen with no connection to you whatsoever suing your critical care doctor for not prescribing hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, basically therapies that are not proven uh, for your spouse hospitalized with COVID, for example. I mean, these are the implications of this law, I think could potentially span beyond abortion. Um, but more importantly, the, rep the repercussions for women and their reproductive rights are huge. And there is a reason that, you know, the Texas Medical Association came out against this, the American Medical Association came out against this, that the American Academy of Pediatrics came out against this, the American Academy of Family Physicians came out. I mean, just so many medical societies in the United States who are saying this is completely on, um, not only just unconstitutional, but flies in the face of the practice of medicine for centuries in this country. Um, um, and so I, I think it's, you know, very, it's very important for, um, for physicians and, and their, you know, ancillary staff to fight this, um, you know, both at whatever level you can from both a financial standpoint to a legal standpoint, because this, this will have implications for potentially decades to come and will set back reproductive rights for this woman, for women in this country. Yeah, it's insidious and it's authoritarian and, and I think, yeah, going off a task that's quite frankly unethical and kind of disgusting. That was Rachel Mahendale and Tasneem Lat, two doctors operating in the state of Texas. We're discussing the introduction of the fetal heartbeat law, effectively banning abortions in Texas and criminalizing health professionals and others who help women procure them. I emphasise that the views of my guests are theirs and not that of their employers. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. The music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kanjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.